Hello, Deanne here, Dr. Deanne Ross. I'm the love theorist. It's good to have you with me. I'm talking today on love and nonviolence as part of the bigger project that I'm engaged in with this podcast series of building a theory of love for us all. The first set of podcasts involves me talking in relation to some of my favourite authors who have deeply influenced my thinking about love so far. Going forward, I'll actually have some conversations with people as well, which I'm really looking forward to as part of co-creating a theory of love. For the first step today, we're looking to talk about love and nonviolence. And as part of my focus, I'm drawing on Mahatma Gandhi's work and writings and also Sandra Bloom, very different people, very different situations. I'm mostly talking about Gandhi's ideas of love as closely related to nonviolence, specifically his idea of Satchigara or truth force, and then introducing Sandra Bloom's ideas of trauma and how violence causes a range of different types of unsafety. This links back to the idea of brokenheartedness caused by violence that I spoke about in another podcast. First, though, to make a comment on the idea of violence. A significant writer in the area of nonviolent communication is Marshall Rosenberg, 2015, who explains what violence can look like in our interactions with others. This is a quote. If violent means acting in ways that result in hurt and harm, then much of how we communicate is violent. For example, judging others, bullying, having racial bias, blaming, finger pointing, discriminating, speaking without listening, criticising others or ourselves, name-calling, reacting when angry. This list of violent actions is perhaps challenging to listen to as we might find behaviours we undertake included here. But for now, if we let this sit as a brief introduction to defining violence in interpersonal communication and going forward, I'll craft it to include other aspects. Gandhi developed his ideas during the decades of India's nonviolence independence struggle from British occupation. India gained independence in 1947. What I really liked about Gandhi's work is that he tried to live what he believed. He tried to model his belief in nonviolence as a means of struggle against what he saw as the oppressive forces of the British Empire. He drew on the Buddhist concept of ahimsa, meaning love, and satyagara, meaning nonviolence. He saw what love as a way of life that we consciously practice at every opportunity and nonviolence as a method of struggle. Mahatma Gandhi explained that satya means truth, nagra means polite insistence or holding firmly to, this being referred to as truth force. In 1909, Gandhi is quoted as saying that his imprisonment as a young man in South Africa during uprisings against apartheid was the gateway to the garden of God, where the flowers of self-restraint and gentleness grew beneath the feet of those who accept but refuse to impose suffering. Here is the key principle of meeting violence with non-violent resistance and self-discipline and refusing to resort to violence. Gandhi was clear that violence leads to violence and wrote at the time, War demoralises those who are trained for it, 
It brutalizes people of naturally gentle character. It outrages every beautiful canon of morality. Its path of glory is foul with the passions of lust and red blood of murder. This is not the pathway to our goal. He said there could be no love if compassion, forgiveness and equality were absent. When Gandhi was questioned about why isn't love more appropriate than the concept of nonviolence, he replied he realised that there needed to be a struggle for justice, for love to be experienced for people. He wrote a little later, in spite of the negative particle non, nonviolence is no negative power. We are surrounded in life by strife and bloodshed, life living upon life. But it's not through strife and violence, but through non-violence that people can fulfil their destiny. Therefore, we need ahimsa plus non-violence, satyagara. Non-violence, as I understand it, and drawing upon Gandhi, refers to the peaceful, respectful and tactical use of power and influence to pressure high-powered individuals and groups to uphold protesters' justice claims. It can include a broad range of non-violent direct action strategies, such as street marches, media campaigns, petitions, sit-ins, and of course, civil disobedience. See C- Sharp's 1973 list of non-violent direct action strategies. Chenoweth 2021 looked at all the major uprisings and revolutions of recent history, and she found that the most successful, the ones that could endure through all sorts of challenges to achieve the public's claim for justice, were ones that were not violent. I think this is really crucial to know this and to believe that this is the way. Martin Luther King's King Jr.'s philosophy of civil disobedience was very strongly influenced by Gandhi's idea on love as nonviolence. Martin Luther King often said, and I'm now quoting from the King Center website, that he got his inspiration from Jesus Christ and his techniques from Gandhi. And by way of introduction, some of the principles are nonviolence is a way of life for courageous people. It seeks to win friendship and understanding. Nonviolence chooses love instead of hate, and nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. There's a lot in these principles, and just for now to mention them so we have a bit of a working sense of nonviolence, where love is about reaching for the highest good, and as Hooke says, in ourselves and in the other person, and nonviolence are our ways of struggling for justice, good in the world uh, without doing harm or resorting to violence. Okay, so if we could accept that for the moment that that's our working definition of nonviolence, then I want to come to the idea of trauma, because that's what we've been saying so far. Basically is love is love, the absence of love rather, can often be experienced as trauma in our bodies, in landscapes and animals, and our relationship between these aspects of all of who we are on the planet. And what we're interested in is how can love make the difference and how love can be the guiding ethic and force in our daily lives in the tradition of Gandhi to bring about a more peaceful and loving world. 
I think the idea of trauma is helpful to translate what the experience of violence into multiple situations can look like. My other podcast refers to pod brokenheartedness, where the emotional aspect of our heart has become deeply harmed by violence or unfairness done to us, or that we've witnessed done to others, including animals and mother nature. This violence is a really important organising concept for these podcasts as the opposite to love. And to summarise, violence includes all forms of oppression, types of injustice and harm. What I want to do now is come to Sandra Bloom's idea of trauma, because I think what's really helpful in how she thinks about trauma is that it fits with our experiences in our bodies and how that can affect our hearts and our ability to love and our ability to flourish in the world. So Sandra Broom has done a lot of writing in this place, including about trauma-organised workplaces, which we'll talk about another time. Her background is as a practitioner in the mental health space and also as a person with a lived experience of mental health. She's trying to understand the parallels that can happen in systems of care for people who are receiving mental health treatment and what's been happening in the person's individual life. One of her most important ideas used from or unpacking what trauma looks like, is how it involves the lack of safety being experienced by the person, where unsafety becomes a potential indicator of harm and possibly trauma. We're interested in particular types of trauma where there has been an injustice or harm done to somebody. Bloom identifies four types of safety that we need for trauma-informed responses with people we may have contact with and for responding to our own trauma. The four types of safety are physical safety, psychological safety, social safety, and moral safety. She says we need to cultivate a sense of physical safety in ourselves so that we feel secure, not only in our bodies, but financial security as well, and that we're free from all types of violence, including self-destructive behaviour, that is being violent toward ourselves. So that's the first of the types of violent, of safety that Bloom would say is needed for people to recover or start to recover from trauma. Psychological safety is the second type of safety, which refers to being able to undertake self-care, self-discipline, fostering your own self-esteem and the ability to live in a self-reflective way as part of a healthy and productive life. Social safety is the third type of safety that Bloom says is really important for avoiding trauma or knowing how to start to recover from it. This refers to the ability to interact with others without being compromised or harmed or without harming others. This idea of social safety links to the fourth type of safety, moral safety, which refers to all the people in a situation following a set of values and commitments that are consistent with treating people respectfully. Moral safety involves being able to act according to our values. I find these four types of safety drawing on Bloom's idea to be very helpful because we, each of us, would perhaps identify when we don't feel safe. Basically, what I'm saying here is that violence can be understood as a threat or experience of unsafety in one or more of these ways. And it can be not only for an individual, but a whole group of people or a whole landscape. Another related idea that I kind of find helpful, which was written about in terms of humans, but I think really fits for animals and landscapes as well, 
is the idea of autonomy infringement by him and colleagues, 2018. They say unsafety can occur if the person feels some sort of infringement, an unwelcome infringement or intrusion on their sense of self and autonomy in the world. It could involve coercion, all types of violence, and is quite complicated, quite a complicated area in some aspects. But just as a general ethical statement, I want to hold that there are certain types of violence that, that can cause autonomy infringement against a person. Maybe all types of violence do. In fact, linking back to Bloom, she writes that trauma involves moral injuries, and this is about the fourth type of safety, moral injury. I really like this quote where she says, Moral injury is where a sense of a just world, which is critical, a critical component of healing, is absent. And moral injury starts with any action or failure to act that devalues an individual, usually by someone or an entity who holds power over them. So trauma exists on a continuum of harm and experience of unsafety and can get laid down in a person's body and can be quite complex trauma and also involve intergenerational trauma. Many of the helping professions talk about the concept of non-maleficence, which means doing no harm, as distinct from beneficence of doing good and helping people. And I really like that concept of non-maleficence. I think it's another way of thinking about non-violence, with the intention of consciously aiming to be of value and do good with people, especially in formal helping relationships, but also more generally in our personal lives. What I also want to make a comment on here is when we talk about violence and harm, we do tend to think mostly about it in terms of our relationship with ourselves or other people. And unfortunately, people do tend to harm people when they are already harmed themselves. This is one of Bloom's ideas of people hurting people. But what I want to talk about is how there's quite a human bias to this discussion about violence and unsafety as indicators of violence, and also then often how this leads to the experience of trauma, which can be very intergenerational and very complex and sits within certain social disadvantaged social groups. The human bias can be termed anthropocentric harm. This is where we have a human focus or bias on causes of harm, and so doing, we're not giving sufficient regard to violence done to other, towards other animals, our kin, and also the landscape. This is a concept from Eaglehawk 2020. I think it's a really important one to recognise the equal, equal intrinsic worth of all beings, of all sentient beings, and the material entities on the planet. I think when we have an industrialised and globalised approach to the farming of some animal species for human consumption, this is Christy Alger's 2020 idea, and she's written about this in her book, Five Essays of Freedom, which I think is a really important book of our times. Alger says, it's a whole industrial kind of business dimension that normalises the use of animals on a scale that is mind-boggling. Millions and millions of animals, chickens, cows, pigs, fish are killed for human consumption and it goes on across the planet every day. 
certain people, business owners, make money on a scale that is also gobsmacking. We don't give sufficient credence to the harm and suffering for animals and the trauma they experience in all of this. And as And of course, as part of this, just to say, I don't believe that you can have humane killing on that kind of scale. I think it's commercialised killing for humane gain. Complex, I know, and I'm very, very concerned about the scale of violence towards certain groups of animals and believe that peace won't be known on the planet while we continue to kill and use animals in these ways. I want to give you an example from my professional practice of the consequences of acting against my value of nonviolence in ways that caused moral injury to me, but more importantly, caused untold harm to service users. As Bloom explains, when people are not able to live according to the values that are important to them, there is a deep moral harm that is done that is not always recognised. This can be the case alongside being regarded as an ethical and competent professional. Any injustice can cause a fracture in a person's sense of what is right and what is wrong in the world and what is okay to happen to them and what's not okay to happen to them. This has bigger and more harmful consequences for people who are service users who are subjected to failures of helping professionals to find less restrictive responses to risk and duty of care obligations. I'll explain what I mean by this. As a social worker of many decades now, the number of times I've been in situations where I've acted in a way that is inconsistent with my values is just such a large error of moral injury. I carry these failures to act according to my values as part of the colour and pain of my own brokenheartedness. It's very hard to even find a single example of it. But perhaps the most concerning example would be when I have worked in the mental health system as a clinical social worker. With the authority of the Mental Health Act, I had the power, the legal power, along with others, to force some people to have a mental health assessment and sometimes was part of decisions where treatment was enforced against their wishes. This is the most troubling and disturbing experience of my life. The ability to keep living with a sense of integrity when we are party to behaviours that put us out of step with our deep values is not something that has a quick or satisfactory answer. Nonviolence is my number one value, and yet I was complicit with what is legal violence, what I believe is unethical violence toward others. That is, even if my actions are seen to be necessary at that point in time, for example, to keep the person safe, it becomes a very morally troubling circumstance, to say the least. There have been strong critiques of mental health practitioners by activists in the mental health lived experience movement, which I am not immune to. A valuable book in this regard is Searching for a Rose Garden, Challenging Psychiatry, Fostering Mad Studies, edited by Russo and Sweeney, 2016. In summary, what we're doing here is getting hold of some ideas that help us think more deeply about the idea of love to give us guidance on how to practice love, not only think about it. We got to the idea of violence and all the forms of oppression that go with that as a really threatening the love needed for justice struggles and the ability for people to experience love. 
I've built on the idea of brokenheartedness by considering the trauma that gets experienced through all sorts of unsafety, namely psychological, social, emotional, and moral unsafety. The fostering of safety are ways to practice nonviolence in our relationships with others and with ourselves. This is also where I see justice work becomes hard to undertake because the impact of brokenheartedness on the very people who are experiencing injustice and trauma, who are often the very same people who need to stand up and be at the front of justice struggles. The ability to act with moral safety and congruence when in a position with legal authority over others is a major challenge in contemporary social work and human services. We shall return to this confounding ethical challenge in a future podcast. For now to note that there is quite a troubling politics that comes with a commitment to be loving and non-violent in contexts that are often loveless and violent. Thank you for being with me today. Really interested to know your thoughts. Let me know also if you've got some good references or YouTube videos on any aspect of what I've been talking about today. Yeah, thanks a lot. Take care. Deanne.